So there's, there's basically this sweet spot between having cushioning to reduce muscular work, but then not adding too much weight, which makes the system less efficient. And so the goal with any running shoe is let's be as light as possible while still being effective to reduce muscular demand. Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, students and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes. We have two missions. The first mission is to connect athletes with professionals who they can trust, and we fulfill that mission through the Clinical Athlete Directory. You can find your nearest Clinical Athlete provider or certified Clinical Athlete Barbell Coach at clinicalathlete.com. Our second mission is to create a community and foster the education of those professionals and future professionals in the realm of athlete health and performance. This podcast is one way that we fulfill that mission, and another way is the Clinical Athlete Forum. The forum is our education, mentorship, and networking community where we discuss and share ideas and resources related to athlete health and performance. To learn more about Clinical Athlete and everything that I just mentioned, head on over to the website, clinicalathlete.com. If you enjoy this podcast, do us a favor and give it a rating on your favorite podcast platform so that we can get the information out to as many people as possible. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California at Clinical Athlete Newport. On this show, we are joined by our usual co-hosts, Jared Maynard and John Flagg. Jared is a physiotherapist and powerlifting coach in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada, a clinical athlete provider and the Clinical Athlete Continuing Education Director. John is a certified athletic trainer and powerlifting, weightlifting, and strongman coach in Maryland, a clinical athlete provider himself and lead instructor of the Clinical Athlete Powerlifting Certification. And we are joined by an awesome guest, Jason Torrey, who is also a clinical athlete provider and a physical therapist and running coach based out of Rochester, New York. I guess it depends on the country that you live in. Uh, Jason is going to school us on all things footwear and the running athlete. This is part one of a two-part brain gain experience with Jason. We hope you enjoy. Jason Torrey, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. We're really excited. So the, so the topic is going to be footwear and the running athlete. And first of all, Jason is a clinical athlete provider, super sharp guy. I've met him a couple of times in person. And he recently did a, one of our casual chats that we have. I'm going to give a plug to the sports performance special interest group of the Sports Academy of the American Physical Therapy Association. Uh, so we're about four layers deep there. So if you're a physical therapist or a student PT and you're an APTA member, join the Sports Academy and then join the Sports Performance SIG. And we do these casual chats. It's basically just kind of a round table. And we did that a few weeks ago and, and Jason spoke on this exact topic and it was awesome. And I learned a ton and I thought, wow, it'd be really cool to have him on the podcast to talk about footwear and the running athlete because uh, I'm pretty sure that Jason has forgotten what John, Jared, and I have ever forgotten or known combined. So we're here to learn. Jason's here to teach, and uh, I think we'll all get a lot out of it. But first, Jason, can you give a little bit of background about where you are now professionally, where you're headed, and also what's led you to these current interests 
uh, with, with footwear and the running athlete. Sure. So I, I want to say first, I've been a big fan of the podcast ever since the uh, Derek Miles yelling at cloud days. Oh, yes. So way, way back there. <laughs> and uh, I think I am one of the six listeners. So unfortunately for this episode, you may have a 17% <sighs> reduction in audience. Amazing. But, uh, okay. That's what it is. So I'm a physical therapist and running coach uh, now based out of Rochester, New York. Uh, my upstate New York accent can finally flourish where it's originally from-ish. Uh, I was practicing in the Ithaca area for the last few years as a, a physical therapist in outpatient sports orthopedics uh, and as a running coach and strength and conditioning coach. So working a lot with the endurance community there, uh, Ithaca being a small town in central New York. Uh, clinically, my interests are in management of the running athlete uh, knee, foot, and ankle conditions because I myself am a runner. I've always been a runner. And uh, that just kind of made sense as the thing that helped me combine my work and my hobbies uh, to, to keep the everyday really enjoyable to me. Uh, so from the running shoe standpoint, I also happen to be uh, a running shoe fanatic, I guess is maybe the, the appropriate term for it. As I've been I've been in the industry before when I was in college, I sold running shoes. So it was uh, something that I was always just very attached to and it naturally turned into something that I followed as, as the research came out too. So um, really get jazzed up whenever I see footwear research, whether it's performance or injury based uh, as well as you know, some of the really exciting things in endurance training right now, like strength conditioning for runners and uh, more on the abstract side of things, the, the complex systems and running related injuries uh, is also something that I'm really into. Um, so I, I did recently relocate to Rochester because I'm going to be University of Rochester Medical Center's sports resident in 2021. So uh, doing a little bit more outside of just the specific uh, endurance population there, but they do have a, a pretty great running clinic. So I'm, I'm going to be uh, really happy to work with some specialists there and really hone my craft. So that's, that's where I'm at now. That's awesome. So they call, don't they call uh, people who are just really into sneakers, like sneaker heads, something like yeah, that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's basically uh, if you're a gearhead, but the only gear in your sport is a sneaker, then you, you become a sneaker head, I guess. It's, is, it's the only equipment you need for running. So. Is, there a, is there a spinoff to a running shoe to the term? Uh, I mean, at this point, it's probably like a vapor fly head or something. <laughs> a vapor head, I like that. <laughs> Um, that, so that's, that's great. Um, I, I'm also, I didn't know that you sold running shoes, which is interesting to me. And I'm curious, maybe later in the conversation, we can talk about when you were doing that. Is, has anything changed? Like if you were like placed into the running shoe store again, and all of a sudden you're selling shoes again, like how would, how would it change? How would your pitch change? But maybe that's something we can talk about after we've, we've laid the groundwork on some of this stuff. So let's just dig right in because there are probably at least uh, three of our five listeners now, or maybe two, I'd say two, maximum two, who understand the anatomy of a running shoe. And when we get into start talking about performance and injury risk and these types of things, and we, and we start throwing around terms that are in reference to shoes, we'll have to backtrack and talk about that stuff anyway. So could you give us kind of an overview or lay some groundwork in regards to uh, anatomy of shoe and then different terminology that we'll use 
to uh, to talk about how that how it relates to performance? Yeah, sure. So I think um, w- when it comes to what I'll describe here is the anatomy of the shoe, I'm going to try to. Uh, keep it to the areas that will require the least amount of visual aid as this is a podcast. Um, And then if there's anything that I think uh, maybe the listeners will want to see some visual aids for, we'll throw that in the show notes or give them some extra resources, stuff like that. Um, But I think a a good place to start would be about the sole of the shoe. So uh, the sole of the shoe is three different parts. Uh, There's the outsole, which is the rubber tread on the bottom. And this tends to be uh, actually one of the heavier parts of the shoe. There's the midsole, which is the foam in between, and that is just basically for cushioning. Uh, and then the insole, which is the actual part of the shoe that contacts the foot, and sometimes this has a removable sock liner. So all three of those components make up what we call the stack height, and that's a common uh, term or a common number that you'll see listed near a shoe. So the stack height is just the uh, total distance between the ground and where the bottom of your foot is. And we measure that right in the center of the heel, uh, both from the side and in the frontal plane. So sagittally and in the frontal plane, you take the very center of the heel and that's the height. Uh, usually you use a dial caliber to figure that out. Uh, you can you can use um, you can use other forms of measurement, but it's not as accurate unless you actually have something inside the shoe to do it. And we'll, we'll come back to that later when we talk about actually measuring shoes. Um, so that's the stack height. And, and then another relevant one that we hear is, is drop or heel to toe drop. And that's just the difference in height from underneath your heel to underneath the ball of your foot. So the, uh, there's traditionally a standard running shoe has about a 12 millimeter drop. So if you've got 30 millimeters of stack height underneath your heel and uh, you have a 12 millimeter drop, then underneath your forefoot, you've got 18 millimeters of foam. Um, so that's, that's probably the relevant anatomy or, or the terms that we'll get into just from the part of the shoe that interfaces with the ground. There's definitely plenty more aspects of shoes, uh, you know, the, the upper part of the shoe that could get talked about for long periods of time. But for the purposes of this talk, I think that's that's the most relevant. Um, now, the properties of the shoe, that's that's where we get into some of the, the variations on the anatomy of the running shoe. So I'd say there's four major properties that we look at in all running shoes, uh, d- independent of the actual style of shoe. Uh, first, you're looking at mass. So how heavy is the shoe? Uh, and this is going to be important when it comes to uh, running performance. So uh, we'll we'll talk about how um, the weight of the shoe influences running performance when we get to that in a little bit. Uh, you have the cushioning aspects of the shoe, and the majority of the cushioning is just going to be coming from that midsole, right in the middle of the stack height. Uh, compliance and resilience are these two properties of the cushioning that are most important. And so compliance is the actual amount that the foam deforms, and the resilience is how much energy it returns. So typically, out in the wild, when we have a very compliant surface, we have a, a very low resilience that's associated with it. So a lot of energy is lost with something that's very compliant. Uh, <clears throat> as technology has improved with different types of footwear foams, we're now seeing very compliant foams that have a lot more resilience. So EVA foam is the most popular foam that's used in running shoes. And that returns about 66% energy on materials testing. Uh, newer foams like the PBAX foam of 
uh, the Nike Vaporfly or these new super marathon shoes, uh, they're returning about 87% energy. So that's pretty significant uh, and, and is thought to be one of the main reasons why those shoes are resulting in such running performance improvements. Uh, oh, go ahead. So um, to, to parse a couple things out, just for my simple mind, when we go back to, to stack height and heel to toe drop, let's say you had, a, you had a certain stack height at the heel, 30, whatever it is, 30 centimeters. If you had a 0% heel to toe drop, that would just be the same stack height all the way from heel to toe. Yeah, so you would uh, you typically see that as called a zero drop shoe. And oftentimes zero drop shoes will also have low stack heights as, as that's common with a minimalist shoe. But now there are also uh, shoes that are more maximalist that have large stack heights, but also just happen to be zero drop. So most, most Hoka shoes, they have a really huge stack height, but there is minimal to you know, very little heel to toe drop. And with those shoes, in particular that have a, a big stack height and little to no heel to toe drop, would those shoes tend to be more compliant because they have more of cushion or not necessarily? Uh, in, in, so if, if, if you're asking uh, the compliance of a zero heel toe drop versus maybe a 12 millimeter heel toe drop of the same uh, stack height, there's not going to be much of a difference in terms of compliance. So the compliance is really going to be more about the material used for the foam. Okay. Go ahead, Jared. So with that, and again, also simple mind, non-runner over here, but if, if a runner is looking at, at a shoe and they're looking at those numbers for compliance and resilience, what, what real quote unquote effect would they expect to, to for those properties to have on their they're running because you mentioned the higher resilience leading to some pretty impressive performances with the Vaporfly. So what would they experience if they started to use those sorts of shoes? Uh, so it's thought that the main reason why the a shoe like the Vaporfly produces such a uh, performance improvements is because of the amount of energy returned, but also because the relationship that that foam has with a carbon fiber plate that's put inside of it. So it's, it's actually, uh, Right now, it hasn't been teased out uh, whether resilience as its own isolated variable impacts those things because it's almost impossible to isolate resilience. You would basically need to design a study where you had multiple different uh, resiliencies of a, of a foam that had the exact same compliance in order to isolate that one variable. Um, that, to my knowledge, has not been done. Well, because if, if, if you were just running on a steel plate then there would be no <laughs> compliance and no resilience because there's nothing relevant or nothing relative to compare it against, or would that be complete resilience, no compliance? Usually it would be higher resilience. Right. So the, the more stiff the surface is, the higher the resilience is, or the less stiff or more compliant surfaces, the lower resilience there is. Uh, but then the the actual property of the material determines a lot of the resilience too. What's the benefit of compliance? Is that just uh, mitigating the the ground reaction force that's going back into the system? Yeah. So it's it's uh, it's thought that because uh, as we as we run on a very compliant surface, our limb stiffness increases. 
And so if our limb stiffness is increasing, it's going to decrease the metabolic cost of locomotion. So that, that is one explanation for why a very compliant surface might result in a decrease in the cost of running or walking, uh, where you're also, though, not losing energy to uh, very low resilience if you're getting a lot of that energy back. Right. So the, we're, we, we're getting like, into limb stiffness already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, and it's also getting into like the super shoe that we'll probably talk at the very, very end. But <laughs> yeah. um, okay, no, this was good. Was there anything? Did you, had you? Was there more for the classifications? Yeah. So I just want to in properties. Just wanted to briefly uh, talk about uh, the third of these four properties: longitudinal stiffness, which is basically if you pick up a shoe and you tried to just fold it in half hamburger wise from heel to toe, uh, a very stiff shoe is thought to provide a mechanical advantage. Uh, but that in isolation has also not been entirely teased out. Uh, and then the fourth property that seems to be important is comfort. And uh, this is surprisingly a pretty recent development. In 2015, uh, researcher Ben O'Nig came out with this comfort filter paradigm theory, which was essentially that uh, comfort is subjective. Runners are going to be picking different shoes that they feel like are, is, are most comfortable to them, and that that selection is going to lead them to just go down their preferred movement path. Um, but unfortunately, that has not really been rigorously tested, still more of a theory. Uh, there's conflicting evidence that wearing a comfortable running shoe improves running economy. Uh, and um, in terms of, you know, actually assessing what does comfort mean, that uh, is, it's been a pretty recent development too. So Bishop earlier this year, Bishop et al. came up with a run cat comfort assessment tool, which was a way to try to objectively put a composite number on what is running shoe comfort uh, by using four main categories, heel cushioning, forefoot cushioning, shoe stability, and forefoot flexibility. Uh, and so there's now a way to basically get a composite score of the subjective nature of how comfortable is this running shoe. Uh, but that's a very recent development and there hasn't been much more other than a, a reliability study on it so far. But none of those determinants were subjective ratings? Uh, so they were all subjective. So the, the, it's a subjective rating of um, how, how okay. cushioned was the heel, how cushioned was the forefoot, did okay. it provide adequate uh, stability, et cetera. Got it, that's interesting. Um, okay. Is that, that's a pretty good overview. Yeah. So those are, those are the, the main properties I'd say of the, the anatomy of the running shoe and the important factors that we'll be re-referencing later on. So then going to what Jared was saying, essentially trying to put these things together in regards to what do the shoes do for us from a performance perspective or why do we care beyond I like that one because it's red or like that one looks real slick. I like those. <laughs> yeah. <a> so, <laughs> right. <laughs> so the, yeah, you, you see two main branches of footwear research. There's the, the performance research and the injury research. And I, I found the performance research uh, a lot more interesting personally uh, because from a running performance standpoint, we can usually point towards VO2 max, lactate threshold, and running economy as the main predictors of running performance. Uh, and so where running economy is our energetic cost of running, uh, it's 
uh, often seen as the rate of oxygen uptake at a certain sub-maximal running pace, uh, but that actually doesn't account for the fact that there is an anaerobic contribution to running as well. So running economy as a whole is, uh, is also a debated area because we're using uh, one measurement to actually represent something that is uh, has a genetic component, it has biomechanical neuromuscular components, it has cardiorespiratory components. Uh, but that seems to be the, the one area that is affected most by footwear uh, is, is our running economy. And how does running economy actually translate to performance? Uh, so Shalaya Kip uh, came out with this article in 2019 that was a, a predictor of running performance based on improvements in running economy and found that basically at the, if you're running greater than three meters per second, which is a 6.7 miles per hour or nine minute mile for the uh, American listeners, you, you see about a three to two running economy to performance improvement. So if, if running economy improves 3% and you're running greater than that speed, performance is going to improve by 2%. And so let's say somebody's running a three-hour marathon. That ends up being a three-minute and 36, uh, or three minutes and 36-second improvement, which is pretty significant. Three hours is the, the Boston Marathon qualifier. So uh, if you get a 2% improvement in performance, that could be enough to get you past that Boston qualifier time. Uh, if we're running slower than that, then it actually comes out to closer to a one-to-one -one improvement. So 1% improvement in running economy leads to about 1% in running performance. Uh, and the, the limitations there uh, really go back to, we don't really know once you get to faster speeds. So uh, things like your, your mile race pace or your 800 meter race pace, where the demand is increasingly anaerobic, the faster we're going. That, that prediction equation is probably less accurate at that point. Um, so why, why do we care? Because what do shoes have to do with running economy? Well, up until a couple of years ago, we would usually see about a 1% to 2% improvement in running economy as running footwear technology improves. Uh, and then a couple of years ago, we started to see 4% improvements and maybe more than 4% improvements compared to the, the next best shoe on the market. So a lot of these, when you see like Vaporfly 4%, uh, it's, it's in reference to the fact that uh, running economy has been improved compared to the next best shoe that, was, that everybody was already running in and setting world records in. Um, so 4% is pretty significant because uh, then if we, we go back to that three-hour marathon example, a 4% improvement in, in running economy is going to result in four-minute and 48-second improvement in performance. Uh, and <clears throat> since this is clinical athlete, we'll also talk about strength and conditioning real quick. So uh, in, in 2018, Rich Blade Grove's systematic review on uh, strength and conditioning for runners showed that running economy improves anywhere between 2 and 8% depending on the strength and conditioning program depending on frequency, depending on duration. But in that systematic review, you could say anywhere between two and 8% improvements in running economy. So that actually looks a lot like just putting on a really high-tech pair of shoes at this point. Uh, and it, let's say it was a false dichotomy and we offered runner the shiny new shoe or the strength and conditioning program. 
I think we know what's going to get picked there. So, <laughs> I, <laughs> yep. Hey guys, Quinn Hennick here. Consider this a little brain break from Jason Torrey dropping knowledge bombs on us about footwear for the running athlete. Don't forget to be on the lookout for upcoming Clinical Athlete Journal Clubs. They're free for anyone to attend and a great opportunity to practice your research reading brain gains. Follow us on the Clinical Athlete social medias and head over to the website, clinicalathlete.com, and become a free community member as well, and you'll get all up to date on what we're doing in the realms of athlete health and performance. And now, back to the show. Running economy, for maybe in a lot of people's minds, they would think biomechanics. They would think efficiency, but that's not really what we're talking about here. We're talking about things that can just basically make the system more efficient. And and how do shoes, specifically, how does the shoe play a part in that? Right. So um, you could, yeah, you could actually make the case that it is, is it's improving biomechanical efficiency, which then is decreasing the cost of locomotion. Uh, most of the time, mass for footwear weight seems to be one of the bigger predictors. So you often see the uh, take 100 grams out of a running shoe and you improve running economy by 1% stat. Uh, and that's actually been reproduced in a number of studies, and it, it hovers around 1% basically on average if you remove 100 grams from a shoe. Um, so really the goal is to make the shoe as light as possible, but there's a caveat because if you just take the shoe away and you have nothing on your foot, you actually see worse running economy. And that was, uh, there was a study, uh, Tongue et al. in 2014, where they they built a padded treadmill so that they could compare running in shoes on a regular treadmill compared to taking away the weight of the shoe and just running on a treadmill that had this extra foam on it so that they could control for mass on the foot. Uh, and it basically confirmed that if you were running barefoot on a regular treadmill compared to running in a very minimalist shoe on a regular treadmill, cost of energy was about the same because what got canceled out was the weight of the shoe in the shod condition and the increased demand on muscles when you're running on shod. So uh, barefoot running, you, you have to expend more energy because muscles have to do more work to match the ground reaction force. So there's, there's basically a sweet spot between having cushioning to reduce muscular work, but then not adding too much weight, which makes the system less efficient. And so the goal with any running shoe is let's be as light as possible while still being effective to reduce muscular demand. Do the characteristics of the shoe, like stack height and heel to toe drop, affect those determinants at all? Because a light shoe could just be a light shoe, regardless of the drop or the or the heel stack, uh, and cushioning, perhaps as well. If we're just talking about compliance and and the resilience qualities of it, but where do the stack height and the heel to toe drop play a part in that? Yeah, so that also goes back to the material being used because you see, let's say you compared EVA foam uh, to a PBAX foam where PBAX is the foam that's being used for the, the Vaporfly. Uh, the PBAX is much lighter at the same amount of stack. So uh, you, could, you could add a foam that has a massive stack height, but if it has very, very low density, it's not going to contribute too much extra mass to the shoe, uh, which is also why it's, it's thought that these 
super marathon shoes are, are very effective is because they're very light and they can also have a lot of cushioning too, which previously was not possible. So it's created this uh, footwear technological arms race to basically get as light as possible, but still provide the the cushion necessary. Uh, but to, yeah, to directly answer your question, it's, it's going to be more about what type of foam because that plays a much bigger role. And then in almost you know, going back to the outsole too, the rubber tread on the bottom of the shoe, uh, that, that can contribute a lot of weight to a shoe. So something like a, a racing flat doesn't have a whole lot of that extra rubber tread, which means the shoe isn't going to last that many miles because it's less durable on the outside, but for the, for the purpose of being able to go fast. And to contrast that, like a trail running shoe has a real thick outsole so it can yeah. last, but that is heavy. <clears throat> yeah. And, and unless you're, really into trail racing, uh, you probably, if you're just a, a casual trail runner, you probably don't care too much about uh, getting the lightest trail shoe, more so one that's durable and will help you get through the trails. Do these shoes uh, and, and determinants of actually affect biomechanics that can be changed with coaching or like observable biomechanics in regards to where we strike the ground, uh, stride length, cadence, those types of things. Yeah, so I think you're, if, if I understand correctly, uh, so things like drop height or heel-toe drop um, and stack height, do they influence foot strike and cadence and things like that? Without, without coaching, <clears throat> do you start running differently just depending on the type of shoe that you wear? Gotcha. Yeah, you do. So uh, that's, that's one uh, recurring theme that, that you do see in some of the minimalist footwear literature is that it does seem to shift the foot strike index, which is just the part of your foot that you're striking the ground with, uh, closer to a midfoot to forefoot strike and a little bit further away from a rear foot strike. Uh, and, and probably a lot of that is just because it's not comfortable to land directly on your heel when you don't have a lot of cushioning. Uh, and conversely, if you do have cushioning, then it just kind of facilitates this path of least resistance, doesn't feel so bad type locomotion. Uh, the other aspect that's hard to control for though is with minimalist shoes, you are uh, you usually see an increase in cadence, which results in that decrease in stride length. Um, you don't really know how much of that is due to the weight of the shoe or due to the reduced stack height. Uh, it, what, what we see with the the, uh, the new marathon shoes is they actually have a, a little bit slower cadence, but not by much. So it's not really enough to really to say like, eh, this is uh, significant enough to say that these big stack height shoes are going to slow somebody's cadence down and increase their, their stride length significantly. But with minimalist footwear, you definitely see that, that uh, increase in cadence, shift in, in foot strike index. Is that what we want on average? It's a good question. <laughs> so so uh, I, I think from the, the foot strike uh, debate or whatever people want to call it, I always refer to Joe Hamill and Alison Gruber's 2017 narrative review, which is basically just saying, um, is changing foot strike actually a good thing? And they go through a lot of great points like, uh, does it improve running economy? And we don't really know from the long-term standpoint is that uh, we don't have long-term 
habituation studies that, that compare running economy to before and after years down the road. What we do see in the short term, though, is if you are a habitual rear foot striker and you switch to a forefoot strike, your running economy gets worse. If you're a habitual rear foot, if you're a habitual forefoot striker and you switch to a rear foot strike, your running economy does not change very much. So it makes kind of a case in the short term to, unless we really want to or need to change that, um, from a performance standpoint, you're going to get worse before you get better. And you never really know who's going to be a responder to ultimately be better than where you were before you made that transition anyway. You can make the case from a chronic injury standpoint that um, foot strike does change the way that we load the body. So uh, something like a forefoot strike is going to facilitate more of that uh, shorter stride length and increased cadence, which has then been shown to decrease load of the knee and the hip. Um, if somebody has had some pretty chronic issues and they've tried a lot of things and they haven't tried that yet and they continue to have these chronic issues, it may be a path that you investigate, but um, personally, it's not the first place that I go. What's the first place that you go? Are we going to talk about cadence? I didn't again? want to ask that. I didn't <laughs> want to ask that. Uh, cadence is, yeah. So I guess I, I best, best bang for buck, you know, on average. Yeah. yeah. From a gate retraining standpoint, cadence just cadence with a um, a temporary time frame on it seems to be best bang for your buck. And we actually we still don't really know about the longer term effects of changing cadence too. We know that people can habituate and and get a new baseline cadence. Uh, but there's there's not a lot of long-term data on it. So that's a key point. You're saying consciously change your cadence so that we can just change some of the force distribution and, and allow a break in the cycle, but, uh, but then allow them as whatever it is that we're dealing with kind of normalizes, allowing their cadence to just self-organize itself probably back to what it was before and then training, you know, manage training a little bit better or whatever we want to do going forward. That's generally my preference uh, from a just, I mean, it's a, it's a symptom modifier. It keeps them training. Uh, but we don't know that the reason why they had that issue in the first place was because they had a slower cadence. So really putting a lot of your eggs in that basket, if you think that then fixing it permanently is going to result in the total resolution of that issue and no re-exacerbation of it. Um, so I, yeah, I try to change as little as possible. And in terms of footwear from a performance perspective, airing on this, if, we, if there was a spectrum, you know, that minimalist index, are we, are we treading towards the minimalist side in regards to trying to kind of get the, the best of all of these determinants just on an average? Yeah, so we were until this new wave of footwear came out. Because once a material came out onto the market that allowed you to be really, really light and very cushioned, uh, that that is not a minimalist shoe. So these these uh, carbon fiber plate marathon racing shoes are not minimalist. They're somewhere, and we'll talk about the specifics of the minimalist index a little bit later. But they sit somewhere at about forty ish on a scale of zero to one hundred, where one hundred is your Vibram five fingers and zero is like your chunkiest blocker of a shoe that exists. Um, 
So they're, they're, they're not minimal issues, but they seem to be highest in performance. So the benefit of the minimal issue previously was that it was a way to get a light shoe. Um, now you can get light without sacrificing other things. So pretending that didn't exist for a second, <laughs> let's, you know, rewind five years ago and, and get into the, well, the minimalist crave craze was like 2004, 2005 ish, but let's talk about that for a second. Cause assuming people don't want to travel into the super shoe realm just yet, or they, the, as far as the minimalist shoe, can you give a little history of how that even came to be a thing? And then what we've learned up to this point. Yeah, sure. So um, I think there's there's probably a lot of different components that came about at this at the same time that really let it blow up. Um, a lot of people reference Born to Run, which was a novel that came out in 2009 that really sparked this interest in uh, going back to the way that things used to be before footwear or basically running in as, as little as possible because it was how we used to do it. Uh, Vibram Five Fingers came out somewhere in the mid-2000s, like 2005 or so, and that also kind of helped to facilitate the, uh, the appeal to nature. Um, and what we know about the appeal to nature is that it's not, uh, it's not always the right thing to do. So it's, it is, I mean, there's a, an appeal to nature fallacy is actually what it's called, uh, because not everything that is natural is good and not everything that is unnatural is bad. And, you know, you can use some fun examples like as humans, we're probably not meant to live until we're in our 90s or 100s, but we do now. Uh, we aren't meant to have teeth past age 40, but we do now. So there are definitely some things that are unnatural that I'm a fan of. Uh, and uh, this, is, this is one of those things that it was proposed as, well, we didn't really see injuries back then, but then we also saw running shoes come about at this certain time, and now we see injuries. And so I think there's a little bit of a post-op fallacy in there too of after a lot of people started running and a lot of running shoes started to get manufactured, we started to see more injuries. Well, we also started to keep track of injuries at a certain point, uh, and a lot of people started running in the 1970s. So if a lot of people are starting a new sport, you're probably going to start to see a higher injury rate, I would guess. I think that's a fair thing to say. Um, but I think that's it's kind of like the background of the minimalist movement. It kind of it came to its peak in the early 2010s, probably. Uh, and it, and it kind of started to, there was a lot of research on it around that time. Irene Davis is one of the most researched uh, researchers on minimalist footwear uh, and a very vocal proponent of them as well as, as changing the foot strike. Um, so I guess what, what do they actually do? What does minimalist shoe do when you transition into it or when you wear it? Uh, so oftentimes it does shift your foot strike index closer to mid to forefoot, like we mentioned earlier. You usually see that faster cadence, uh, which decreases stride lengths. Uh, which is then going to decrease braking forces and peak vertical ground reaction force. But we don't always see that. That's a, it's a theme that we see in some studies. Uh, actually, Rich Willie and Irene Davis had a study that showed that it increased peak vertical ground reaction forces in, in a short-term transition. So it's, uh, there's probably a case for there's, there's responders and non-responders to them, as with any intervention. 
Uh, and so you'll you'll usually see that trade-off then of, well, if you're wearing a minimalist shoe, you might see a decreased load at the knee and the hip, but you're probably going to see increased stressors at the foot and ankle. And so it's a Rob Peter to pay Paul situation, except everybody's kind of poor because everybody gets injured in running at every location in the lower leg. Poor Peter. <laughs> He's always getting robbed. Um, no, okay, that, that makes sense. And then all of a sudden here comes the super shoe and everybody's like, ah, ah. You can have my, your cake my, and eat it too yeah. now. <laughs> We'd like to thank Jason Torrey for being on the show. You can check out the show notes for a link to the minimalist index that Jason referenced during the show, as well as contact info for him and the Clinical Athlete crew. Speaking of, thank you to my homies, Jared Maynard and John Flagg for steering this ship alongside me. And thank you, the Clinical Athlete community, all six of you for joining us on this journey of knowledge and improved practice in both the gym and clinic. And remember, if you want to dive even deeper into the clinical athlete community, you can check out all that the clinical athlete forum has to offer, which includes our clinical athlete academy courses, amazing discussions and networking with professional clinicians and coaches, as well as students, and just our overall hub of knowledge in regards to athlete health and performance. Thanks everyone and talk to you soon.